Well, let me invite you tonight to uh, look around you and find a, a Bible, find a copy of God's Word. And let me ask you to turn there with me to the letter of uh, Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches in the New Testament. We're going to be tonight beginning a new study through this letter. Um, if you're visiting with us, you should know that we uh, ordinarily uh, and regularly preach through books of the Bible from beginning to end. And as we have completed our most recent study, uh, we will be introducing and coming to the first few verses of this letter tonight, and we will consider it together. Over the next several months, uh, it will be a study of some length. It's not a terribly long letter, but it is very dense and it is extremely important. And so we're going to be considering it together for quite some time over the next few months um, in our worship services here on Sunday nights. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to, uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. I was telling, I was telling my partner uh, here, I was telling Chase this morning that I had, I had gotten here kind of early and, and I was in there trying to edit my, my outline for this morning because I had way more than I normally have. I, you know, when you've been doing this for a little while, you kind of know how much of an outline equals how much of a sermon. And to, I want to be respectful of people's time. And I had way too much. And this morning was kind of long. And so I appreciate your patience with that. But tonight's kind of the other end of the spectrum. I, I don't have nearly as much as I normally have. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be here the same amount of time. Uh, but for whatever encouragement you find in that, uh, so let it be known. Uh, so maybe you can have some hope there. But we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians 1, and uh, we'll be considering them together. Before we read it together, let's pray. God, we ask now that you would open your word to us, that you would write it upon our hearts, that you would give us understanding where in our sin there would be none. God, that by your spirit you would speak clearly to us, that we would be made like Jesus our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So we, re- we find here, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul... An apostle not from men, nor through man, uh, your translation may have through the agency of men, depending on what you're reading, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to break our teaching tonight into three simple sections. First, the occasion. Second, the apostle. And third, the message. And we have to consider something of the occasion upon which Paul is writing. And I'll confess to you now, uh, I have been diligently studying and reading some academic writings this week on uh, some dating issues of Galatians, and I'm still working some of those things out. Uh, And while I may not know absolutely the answers to all of those things, some of those things we may not be given the answers absolutely to, frankly, when you try to harmonize Paul's missionary journeys and his writings and his efforts in spreading the gospel in the book of Acts and try to harmonize those with his letters as they actually exist, tracing some of those things is nearly impossible. Um, It can be very difficult, but I have found it to be incredibly beneficial to me this week as, frankly, I think I have kind of changed a number of things that I have 
always up to this point understood about the book of Galatians. I've never preached through the book of Galatians ever in my pastoral ministry. So this is a first for me. So this is uh, very helpful and exciting for me. And so I'm really worked up to tell you all the things that I've learned uh, in, the, in the reading that I've been studying this week. But we have to consider something of the occasion. In other words, what in the world is Paul doing? And we know it's Paul because he says it right there at the beginning. And we'll come to that as we consider the second point, the apostle. But why is he writing? To whom is he writing? And what has occasioned this writing? Well, the first thing that you notice, if you are familiar with any of Paul's writings in the New Testament, is this letter is different. It is different from every other letter that Paul writes because the niceties, the forward doxology that comes at the beginning of all of his letters, the pronouncements of thanksgiving for the people of God to whom he's writing and the grace of God present in their lives, all of those things are gone. Spare the one remark with regard to the gospel in verse 3, grace and peace to you. He is giving that there because grace results in peace from God insofar as we understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's going to advocate in his message here. But apart from verse 3 there, there are no niceties. And in fact, his opening here is super short comparatively. So what in the world is going on? Paul is more impassioned, I would say, in this letter than perhaps in any of his others. Now, Paul was a passionate guy. I think we know that. Paul was passionate in his writing. But there is a brutality and an honesty and a frankness and a severity to his writing in the book of Galatians that we don't find in any of the other letters. Why is that? Well, when we seek to harmonize uh, the events of the book of Acts, you're going to be looking at about chapter 11 with the uh, issues of Peter and the question of embracing in table fellowship of the Jews, the Gentiles, whether or not the Jews should have been embracing these Gentiles in table fellowship around, around meals. You have that event in, 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 in Acts 11 with Peter. And then on the heels of that, we have the record in say 13 and 14 of Paul's first missionary journeys. That would have been in about 46 or 47, where from his home in Syrian Antioch, he heads out and he goes to the area of southern Galatia, to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to go to places like Antioch and Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch. He's going to go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And we have the record in Acts 13 and 14 of those churches in southern Galatia, what's now modern Turkey, that he established through the careful, um, diligent, through literally blood and sweat and beatings and stonings, through the careful preaching of the gospel on behalf of these Gentiles in Galatia. And through his effort in 46 and 47, this, uh, these churches in the area are born. Well, well, what we find is then that on the heels of the questions surrounding Peter's involvement with Gentiles around the table, there is this growing concern about the Gentiles and their inclusion in the church. And that's ultimately going to find its come to a head and, 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 and the apostles and the leaders of the church are going to come to bring a verdict about whether or not the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians have to be circumcised and, and practicing Judaism in some way in order to be Christians and to be saved and to be a part of the church. That's going to come to a head in Jerusalem at the Council of the Apostles in Acts 15. So we're looking at like Acts 11 to about Acts 15, okay? 
But what we find is then that from 46 and 47, as he takes this first missionary journey, then perhaps before the Jerusalem Council of 49, before that verdict is given, while these questions are swirling around, I think it's most likely that in maybe, say, 48, just before he's to head up to deal with this issue in Jerusalem with the elders and the leaders to bring this issue to a close and to make a verdict on it, he writes this letter to the Galatian churches. But he writes it because there is no time to waste. And we have to understand that. Paul in this letter is to the point because he is a man on a mission. Get the picture. If it's only 48 and these churches were planted through his missional efforts in 46 and 47, then in less than two years, as we're going to see, the gospel has come under siege. And Paul does not intend to stand for it. As the apostle that has in some way birthed these Christians and brought the gospel to them, he is impassioned and he is furious because of the false teachers that have now crept into these churches in southern Galatia and have begun preaching to them a different gospel. Well, who are these false teachers? Well, we know that they are a group known as the Judaizers. It's one of the areas where I've had to do a lot of work and thinking. Who are these Judaizers? I think it is most likely that they are a faction of the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. So that you have the church in Jerusalem in a, in a, in a Jewish community full of traditional Jews that have now, at least by their profession, begun to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, they begin, guess what, by the Jews in their community to be persecuted because they're now embracing Gentile believers, like the issue we see with Peter in Acts 11. And so then the question arises, how are we to, you know, gain favor again with the Jewish community in Jerusalem and seek to do away with this persecution and avoid this persecution? And I think the result of that is, for a number of reasons, and maybe we'll get to that later when we get to chapter 2, but they then head out to wreak havoc in the Galatian churches. And they come, and what they do is, they preach the gospel, and in quotes here, the, the little g, false gospel, to these churches that Paul planted with the true gospel, the pure gospel, that, once, that gospel once for all delivered to the saints, that he gave his blood and life for. Well, Paul has planted the church through that gospel and these guys come in from the church at Jerusalem in order to gain a standing with the Jewish persecutors in their community to convince them that they're actually winning Christians to Judaism or some form of Judaism. So what do they tell them? Oh, no, 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 Paul, he didn't really know what he was talking about. He was mistaken. We've now come from the church in Jerusalem. And as Jewish Christians, we have to tell you that if you want to be a Christian... You must also be a Jew. Fundamentally, you must be circumcised first and then believe in Christ. And that's what will result in your salvation. And so this false gospel has come to creep in. This legalistic structure has now crept into the churches that were birthed by grace. And Paul is really worked up about it. He's way more worked up about it than I am about this sermon. He's upset. He's furious. Paul has no intention of standing by idly and watching the churches in Galatia in confusion and chaos and gospel misunderstanding 
un- until it's worked out, you know, in some council by the elder. That, that's not Paul's goal. And so he sits down and he pins this letter in order to stand and to contend and to fight for the gospel. And guys, that's where I want to begin. The title of this message is Getting It Right. Getting It Right. That could be the title of this sermon series. Let, let me ask you this, church. We have Christians, some Christians here from other churches. Does it, does it bother you at all that in Christian communities, in the Bible Belt, in the Southeast, among people who claim to be evangelical Protestants, gospel confusion reigns and false gospels are being believed every day. I mean, is, is there wiggle room when it comes to the gospel? Do we have to just look the other way and say, well, you know, they, they, they believe a little differently than we do about gospel things and about how people can be saved, and that's okay. They really love Jesus, and we just have to let those other things pass away and seek this sort of ecumenical nebulousness. Because that wasn't, that wasn't Paul's mentality. Listen, there's a lot of room for a lot of difference about a lot of things. The gospel is not one of them. The litmus test for Paul in Galatia, the litmus test must be for us today in Gulfport, Mississippi in 2018. The litmus test for whether or not a church is a true church is how do they answer the question, how do men, sinners, come to be in heaven with God for eternity? The way they answer that question will determine whether or not they are a true church with maybe just a few differences, or whether or not they are not a church at all, but they are the false prophets of the false gospel in some form or another that is akin and the cousin of the one that Paul is fighting against in the churches in Galatia in 48. And we have to understand that. Listen, I've taken not a little bit of heat in my pastoral ministry because of my unwillingness to wrap my arms around other professing Christians that do not understand the gospel. I I will not associate with them and I will not associate our church with them because the gospel is an exclusive gospel and we'll see that now. And Paul is up in arms because the false gospel of the Judaizers has crept into the churches and he will not stand for it. So he writes this letter to bring clarity to gospel confusion. He wants to get it right. And as we're gonna see, as Chase is gonna pick up next Sunday night, He gets right to the point down in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. I'd be shocked too, but you know what? How long do you think it would take for gospel confusion to creep in here at Redeemer? One sermon? Two? We must be so careful about who is appointed to teach and to lead and to proclaim the gospel. Listen, we may not have every answer to every question that people bring us from Scripture, but we, can't, we cannot waver on the truths of Scripture that are plain, and the gospel is plain. And so we have to guard the deposit, is the language of the New Testament. We have to guard the deposit that has been delivered to us, that deposit that was delivered to Paul, that was disseminated to these Gentiles in Galatia, this deposit that brought about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we must be prepared to contend for it and to fight for it. Let me ask you this, and we'll move into the next point. 
Are you prepared to tell your friends of other faiths and of other churches that add things to the gospel, the gospel plus? I heard Derek Thomas preaching on this, and he was impassioned as he ought to be. And he called it the damnable plus of the Judaizers. When your friends and who claim to be Christians, they tell you that, well, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to trust in Christ, but you also have to fill in the blank. Are you prepared to tell them that that's a false gospel and that they cannot even get to God if that's what they believe? They may not respond kindly to you. Paul says we must. So the occasion is one of dire need. It is one of utter seriousness. Uh, it, it It is life and death. Paul has birthed these churches, spiritually speaking, even being stoned and beaten and run out only to return to the city to finish his sermon. That's pretty awesome. That's the way I want to be known, you know. You better kill me or I'm just going to go back in and finish the rest of the 50 minutes that we were supposed to be scheduled to hear. Not only the occasion, but the apostle. How do we encounter Paul in these verses? We'll look at what he says. First, it says Paul. Guys, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This is Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, or also known as Saul of Tarsus. The Jew of Jews, very learned and very trained in Judaism, a Pharisee of zeal, right? A persecutor of Christians at one time, who on the road to Damascus, on his way to uh, persecute and arrest Christians, was apprehended by God, in the words of Steve Lawson. He was headed to arrest Christians, and Jesus arrested him, struck him blind and saved him. He became known by his other name, Paul. So we're known for the remainder of the New Testament. And Christian history has not really debated in any way whether or not he is the author of this epistle. And so his name bears it at the very outset. I like this. Uh, I'll start writing emails this way. You know, they didn't get to the end. They didn't tell you everything they had to tell you in a way to tell you who they were at the end. They put it right up front. But it, but it was intentional. There were no, it wasn't a salutation at the end. Because... Your willingness to listen to what they said depended greatly on who they were. And that's what we see. Paul, look at what he says. An apostle. One thing we must understand is that in order to, um, in order to undermine his gospel in the churches in Galatia, one of the tactics that the false teachers and the Judaizers used was to go to those churches in Paul's absence and say, oh, that Paul, he's not really an apostle. Right? Because those that had been commissioned to take the gospel to the nations, those upon whom God was going to build his church shortly after the resurrection, were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who walked and talked with him, those who authored scripture by the Holy Spirit, those who had personal eyewitness testimony and who were commissioned by him personally so that they received their gospel message from Jesus and thereby from God. And they gave that deposit to the churches and the churches were built. So they came into Galatia and they said, man, that Paul, he's not a real apostle. They probably said things like, oh, you know, it was way, it was, it was after he was already dead and, 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 you know, and, and, and then he was, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He decided to be a Christian that day. He didn't really walk and talk with Jesus. He wasn't a personal eyewitness kind of guy. He wasn't one of the original 12. They probably said all sorts of things like that. And so Paul here, before he is going to really, really lay into them, not in a negative sense, but really seek to bring clarity with a sharp knife. He is going to get their attention and tell them, you do not have a choice. 
You do not have a choice if you believe in Christ, but to listen to the message that I preach. And he does that by giving a very weighty defense of his apostolic authority. That's where he begins. Let me, look, let me show you the aspects of it. First, he says an apostle. This is the word that he uses, an apostello, a sent one. He is appealing to the very thing that the false teachers wanted to tear down. That is, that he had not been sent to them by Jesus personally. And he is telling them that I am the real deal. I am a legitimate apostle. He's going to go on. Look at what he says. Not from men. Notice this falls in line with that desire. I was not sent here by a man. This was not some man's idea. This is not something that I came up with on my own. Both the message and my commissioning to take it, I am sent from someone and it is not a man. Now notice the second. Nor is it through men or through Man. Some of you may say through the agency of men. Paul is appealing here to how he came to understand and receive the message. And friends, like no one else, Paul could claim that there was no human agency whatsoever involved in his coming to know, understand, and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, could he? Here's the man who was steadfastly opposing the Christians that preached it, not listening to them setting his face against all that God intended only for Jesus, in the words of Steve Lawson, to miraculously apprehend him that day on the road. God relied on no man for that, that endeavor that day. It was, a, it was a beautiful, miraculous, monergistic, God-exalting, all-powerful, divine, breaking into the life of Saul of Tarsus and saving him that day on the road. And so he tells them, I am an apostle, and it is not from man, and it is not by man. I was saved by Jesus personally. I was taught the gospel by Jesus personally and miraculously. No preacher told me these things. And I have been sent in his authority by his word, according to his commission, to preach his gospel. You see, so Paul said, listen, you're not listening to me because I'm eloquent of speech or because I'm forceful in my delivery or any of those things. Notice what he says next, not of man or from men, not through man, but then he gives the positive, but through Jesus Christ. Again, notice that he is appealing to the intimate connection, the intimate nature of his calling in Christ the intimate knowledge he has of the gospel of Christ because it has come to him personally. Notice often it is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it's reversed. He puts the Lord Jesus Christ first because this issue of apostolic authority was connected to one's intimacy with Jesus. That is, in the years and in the time that he was in the providence of God walking in flesh upon this earth proclaiming the gospel and calling men unto himself. And so Paul here very carefully flip-flops that and puts Jesus first before God the Father in order to identify himself intimately and personally with Jesus Christ. But it is not only through Christ, it is through God the Father and God. What is it about God the Father that he proclaims? It is through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Notice here he is appealing not only to apostolic authority, but that it has been produced in him by divine power. Do you see what Paul's saying? Yes, it is all of God's doing and it is through personal, intimate 
knowledge of Christ. I have been taught this by Christ. I have been sent by Christ. But then he's reminding them, you must understand that it is only by God that these things can be present in my life. It is the power of God that raised Christ from the dead that brought my cold heart to life in him. That's what Paul's saying. That it was a great miracle, he says, that I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be standing before you. Guys, let, let that be good news to you tonight that can sink in. You may be, like, you may have a really checkered past. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead is raising dead hearts to life every day and setting them out to do unbelievable things. And Paul appeals to that divine power here in accord with his apostolic calling. But then notice one last thing here, the apostle. He doesn't just leave it there, this parenthetical. He returns and he says, I'm an apostle and I come with all the brethren, all the brothers that are with me. Who's he talking about? Well, he's likely writing this letter back from his home base in Syrian Antioch. That's different from Pisidian Antioch, one of the southern Galatian churches to whom he's writing. And he found home base, if you will, in his home church in Syrian Antioch. And what we know about this church is that by Paul's ministry there and leadership there and others, that it becomes one of the most profoundly important, faithful, God-honoring pillars of the gospel in the New Testament church community. The Syrian Antioch church becomes the platform from which Paul would jump off into his missionary journeys and he would always return home to be strengthened and to be encouraged in the faith. He relies upon those brothers, upon their gospel convictions, upon their help, support, and insight, upon their prayer. And here he comes to the Galatians now, these young, infant, struggling churches, even if they have gathered now to some size. And he says, I am coming by the power of God with an apostolic calling directly directly from Jesus, and I am in concert with all of the testimony of the brethren at the church that I come from. You see Paul, you see what Paul's saying? I'm not the only one who thinks this. And that may seem insignificant to us. But friends, when we begin to believe a gospel and to believe things about the Bible that we think God has somehow shown to us, that he has not made known, to and through the church over thousands of years of church history and faithful, godly, intelligent men and women, we should be weary. And Paul says, listen, I'm not coming to you alone. I'm coming in the power of God and with the testimony of the true church of God. And I am calling you to believe the true gospel that they stand in. I'm not alone in this. You see then that the apostle, the apostle Paul, in order to tear down the assaults of the Judaizers upon the churches in Galatia, he builds a weighty defense of his apostolic authority. Thirdly and finally, look, the message. Before he can go about correcting and dealing with the false teaching, he's got to do something to articulate it rightly. And I think he begins here. This is not an all-expansive, all-encompassing definition of the gospel. But make no mistake, this is a clear and a wonderful and an important 
declaration of what God has done for us and had done for these Galatians and had done for the church at Syrian Antioch and had done for Paul through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ only and not the gospel of the Judaizers. So before he can go fixing the wrong, he's going to labor to get it right. Look at what he says. He says to these churches in Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to belabor that verse, uh, simply to tell you, this is gospel peace that results in gospel grace. And it always comes in that order, grace and peace to you. Because apart from the grace of God, there will be no peace in your life. It is only the peace of the gospel that gives us any hope and security. And this comes to us from God, the father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at how he begins. Who? You don't have to go very far. He's making a very important declaration about the gospel. Listen, Paul is telling these Gentile Christians that are now so confused because they have been told they have to get in line with a Jewish program and a Jewish tradition in order to be saved. He says, friends, salvation is not by a program. The gospel is not a plan. It's a person. Don't miss that. This grace that results in peace has come to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who has done something. It's not the plan that worked itself out in redemptive history. It's the person. And programs and plans and traditions cannot, they cannot change the heart. But the person of Jesus Christ, right? It's not the program that was hung on a tree. It's not the plan that was hung on a tree. It's the person of Jesus Christ. What does he say second? Look, who gave himself. This is very important. If you go back to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, it won't be too long in the life of our church that I think we're going to teach through John's gospel on maybe Sunday morning, so we'll come to this. But in verses 17 and 18, what, is, what does Jesus say? For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father wrapped up in Paul's proclamation here that it is Jesus, the person who gave himself. It is the volitional act of God in setting certain aspects of his deity aside, in condescending to earth from heaven, taking on human flesh, and giving his life away volitionally. Secondly, wrapped up in that statement, is in order to give himself for that purpose and to that end, he must alone possess the authority to do so. It's going to be very important in our understanding of the gospel that Jesus' life was not taken. Yeah, people killed him. But what does Peter say, right? What does Peter say in his sermon just after Pentecost? This Jesus that, yeah, you guys crucified and hung him up on a tree and you killed him. But you did so in accord with the foreordained plan of Almighty God. He gave of himself. His blood was not spilled. It was poured out. Freely given. It was not accidental. It was not coincidental. 
It was not as if we saw Jesus walking around and sinners thought, man, if we would just take him and kill him and shed his blood, God's wrath against our sin would be appeased. We didn't come up with it because we couldn't. The God who alone has the authority to give it has given it. He gave it volitionally and willfully. It was not taken from him. And notice what it is that he gave. He gave himself. Why himself? Because nothing other would, nothing else would do. There was no other substitute for sin and for sinners than the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave of himself. Look then next, this other aspect. Who? Jesus. What did he do? He gave himself. What did he do? What did he give it? For our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin, totally righteous, to become sin so that in him we would have righteousness, the righteousness of God. What we are given to see in Paul's language here, that the gospel, the true gospel that brings about the transformation of the sinful heart is a substitutionary gospel. That he gave of himself that from his righteousness we would benefit and have that righteousness imputed to us in order that for us, our sins, that he himself would take. So that there is this glorious divine substitution that takes place in and at the heart of the gospel. One, one pastor, one commentator said that if he was forced at gunpoint to articulate the gospel in one word, You can't really sum the glorious truths of the gospel in one word. He said it would be substitution. I think I agree with him. That Jesus Christ, the man, gave himself by his will and authority for my sins. Apart from that substitutionary understanding, there is no gospel. And in that substitutionary understanding, we find the basis of justification before God and redemption with him. Does that make sense? And so Paul gets it right here. The gospel is about a person who gives of the only thing that would do. And he does so by his divine authority. And he does so in the place of the sinners that he seeks to retrieve for himself. You notice this is all about the action of God. He continues. What did he give himself for? For our sins? Well, to what end? To deliver us from this present evil age. Notice that Jesus went through this, laying down of his life, taking upon himself our sins, standing in our place in order to deliver us from something. What is it that we are to be delivered from? Well, there are many things that we are to be delivered from through the gospel, but most importantly, and in view here is the judgment of God that is coming upon the evil, the evil age one day. You understand That which Jesus has taken is the wrath of God against sin that we will no longer have to incur. And so the deliverance in its most basic sense, as Paul says here, he has done all of this in order that through this and this alone, the wrath of God against your sin and mine might be mitigated and done away with. It would be poured out upon Christ. So that when the evil age in which we live perishes under the weight of the judgment of God Almighty, you and I will not perish with it. 
So he has done this for our sins in order that he would deliver us from the present evil age and the wrath of God coming against it. And then finally and lastly, notice what he says here. And all of it according to the will of our God and Father. Friends, it was not our idea. It was not our plan. It was not according to our purpose that Jesus came and saved us. It was not even because we wanted him. It is because God loved us and from eternity past elected us and set us aside for glory and salvation. If God had sat around in heaven waiting on me to wish him to save me, he would still be waiting. I could not have even fathomed and come up with what would be necessary to secure my eternal destiny in heaven. To make fellowship with God the supreme righteous of the universe. Uh, it, it is beyond my sinful comprehension to, gas, to, to grasp that, to understand that. It was not our plan, and friends, it could not have been. All of this is simply because of God. And guess who knew that to be true? Saul of Tarsus did. Nobody had to try to convince Paul that the work of salvation, the work of recreation in the human heart is the work of God. His point to the Galatians is that it is the work of God only. Jesus, he says, did not die to circumcise their flesh. Guys, Jesus did not give himself to modify your behavior. He did not die and pour his blood out on the cross in order that we would be happy or wealthy or wise or in order that we would walk the straight and narrow. It's not about behavior modification. It's about being made new and given a standing before God that our effort could never earn. Do you see that? And so these Galatians, they are on the precipice of falling away from the faith and apostatizing. Why? Because although they believe in Jesus, they say, they have come to believe this false truth, that in order to be good enough for God, I also have to be circumcised. And God says, In that simple confusion, the gospel is lost. Because it has gone from a whole work of divine power and authority to something that man must help accomplish. And let that encourage your heart today. I don't know what you were doing an hour ago. I don't know what you were looking at last night. I don't know what you were thinking about yesterday. I'm not advocating, as Paul doesn't. I mean, you go to Romans, he says, am I, am I saying that we should just sin all the more that grace would abound? That is not my point, friends. But you need to understand something. If you think that your salvation and standing before God hinges upon your obedience and behavior, you don't know the gospel. God saves you in spite of you because he loves you from eternity past in Jesus. We must, we must, we must stand with Paul, fight the fight, get it right, and guard the deposit. And in doing so, we must, with grace and love, we must stand against the false gospels that swirl 
and flail around us. They're everywhere. Guys, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith in him only, will you be saved. Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you and we thank you for uh, what you've done for us in Christ. God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize that these Galatians are not too far from our own hearts. That we desire a list of do's and don'ts. And we want to, you know, check off boxes so that we might know that we are good enough for you. God, break us tonight and help us to see that we could never, ever, ever be good enough. And God, because of Christ, we don't have to be. Help us to relish in the glory of the gospel, the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that has given us a standing in your court in spite of our sin. God, may we look to him and by the power of your spirit seek to, with joy and gratitude, live worthy of that calling. God, help us to get it right and to guard the good deposit of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.